Well, good morning. <clears throat> There's more people in here than three, so good morning. Let's do that again. All right. It's good to see y'all this morning. It was like an Easter Sunday almost out there. Look at all these people. It's good to see y'all. Uh, if you have your Bible, I ask you or invite you to turn to Acts chapter 13, and as you're flipping there, uh, Luke brought, uh, told, brought to my attention, we have a group of college students from Michigan. Is that where y'all are from? Uh, they're serving at the Glory House this week, and so let's give them a hand, a welcome across point. Uh, thank y'all for coming and uh, serving, our, serving our city. Uh, and so anyway, also uh, just make mention, it's not in the bulletin, uh, but on March the 26th, the last Sunday of this month, we will have our first family meeting uh, for 2023 and so family meeting, that's our membership meetings. It's, it's our cross point. It's what we call business meetings, if you will. But it's our family meeting this, the end of this month at 5 p.m. So go ahead and mark that on your calendar. Uh, and so uh, I'm excited about, about that. And so anyway, Acts chapter 13, uh, we are continuing on the first missionary journey. Uh, and um, I'm excited about the text. And uh, let's pick up in verse uh, 13 of chapter 13, and I'll read through verse 25. And so this is actually uh, Paul's first recorded sermon uh, that we'll see in the text. It's not his first sermon. Obviously, he's been preaching for years at this point, but this is his first recorded sermon. Uh, and it's really funny. One of the fun things about preaching is whenever you're preaching a, a sermon, like preaching somebody else's sermon. And so preaching a, preaching a sermon on a sermon, that's what we're doing uh, through this text. And so we're breaking up uh, this the Paul's uh, sermon over three weeks, uh, and so I'm going to cover uh, up to verse 25 uh, this week, and then Luke will pick up where uh, I leave off this morning next week. Anyway, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail uh, from Paphos and call, uh, came to Perga uh, and Pamphylia, uh, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on. Uh, from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia on the Sabbath day. And, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After, reading, uh, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement uh, for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up, talking about a golden opportunity. They're just in a random, uh, visiting a synagogue, and, or, and they say, hey, you got anything to say? And obviously Paul says, yeah, I do. Uh, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up, with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, 
What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray now as we, as we turn our attention to it, God, that we will see this as, as just as much worship as singing songs, God, that we get to worship you through the, through the reading and the teaching of your words. God, we pray uh, that you speak to us. God, we pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe this morning. It's in Christ that we pray. And everybody said. Amen. Hey, I want to pull up the map. Uh, Luke, I forgot to get your laser pointer from you. I'm going to pull up the map I showed you last week. And so here where we have Paul and Barnabas's uh, first missionary journey. So uh, where we picked up last week, they were in Antioch down over on this side of the map. But this one, I need the laser pointer. You got it in your pocket? Do you just keep that around? Uh, uh, anyway, so they started in Antioch. They went down to Seleucus. Uh, Seleucia sailed over to Cyprus, so that's where we were last week. They go from coast to coast, uh, and now when we pick up the text, they're, they're starting a 200-mile uh, boat ride up to Pamphylia, where Perga is there. Uh, and so uh, that's where we start reading the text, that's where they are, and they end up in Antioch and Pisidia. So I want you to just kind of see, following the red lines, of where we're walking through. And eventually, by the, by the time we get to the end of chapter 14, well, we'll be all the way back in Antioch where they started. So it's really just cool to watch where we're going and follow them on the map like that. But anyway, if you're taking notes this morning, here's the good news for you. I've only got two points in this text, but it's still three pages. But anyway, uh, and so uh, really breaking this text down, there's really two main points or two main structures you see. Uh, first one we see in verses 13 and 14, uh, verse 13 and 14, where I, I've, I've named this point drama, disease, and determination. Uh, and so, because there's a lot going on in these two verses that Luke just kind of flies over. Uh, he doesn't really expound upon, but upon further research, there's a lot, lot of things that are happening in verses 13 to 14. And in the second point, we will see Paul's sermon, which I've, I've titled, God is faithful to his people and his promise. But anyway, if you're taking notes, uh, number one, drama, disease, and determination is what we see first in this text. First of all, look at verse 13. It says, now Paul and his companions. Uh, you take a, if you remember up to this point, whose name was first? Barnabas's, right? So every time we read up to this point on this journey, it was Barnabas and Saul or, and Barnabas. And, and so now we're seeing for, for the first time, now Paul's name becomes first. And so what that indicates to us is that ultimately Paul's now becoming the primary leader. Not, uh, so when they first started and they went to Cyprus, which was Barnabas's home, home, home island, that's where he came from, uh, and now Paul, he's dropped the S and gained the P. He's Paul now, and now he's the primary leader. And what we see them doing is actually they're going to his home turf, right? So at first they were in Barnabas's, and now they're getting into Paul's home turf, if you will. And so we see in verse 13, there's a, there's a primary, uh, there's a leadership change that happens. Uh, and now they begin on this, from Cyprus going to Pamphylia, there's a 200-mile boat ride. And then once they make it to land, there's a 12-mile ride upriver to Perga. And so there's 212 miles, miles that we see just in verse 13 that they're covering, right? So there's a lot of things going on uh, just in the beginning of verse 13. But then it says that John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Right, so remember, John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. We meet him at the end of chapter 12. Uh, whenever he's coming back, uh, we hear about him uh, in chapter 12 when Peter goes to John Mark's mother's house, right, where the believers are praying after he's released from prison or delivered from prison. 
uh, by the angel. And then we see that he comes with Barnabas, and now somehow he's tagging along with Paul and Barnabas on the mission trip. And so he, he makes it to Cyprus. Everything's good. Maybe he, we don't know why he left. Maybe, like, it wasn't quite as fun as he thought it was going to be. Like, we don't really know. Maybe, maybe he wasn't really dealing, he wasn't dealing well with the leadership change because at first his cousin Barnabas was the leader. Now Paul's the leader. So maybe he's not liking the leadership change. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe we don't know, but we do know that he left. Uh, that he left for different reasons, and we don't know all of them. Maybe he didn't like how Gentile-focused Paul was. We don't, we don't really know, but we know that it, was, uh, that it was extreme. It was something big because in chapter 15, I'm jumping ahead, but when they begin to go on their second journey, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark back. And Paul says, nope. So much so that Paul and Barnabas split up, so we know that evidently it was uh, something seriously went on there. We don't know exactly what it was, but Paul said, we don't, he don't, we don't need to go on the second trip with us. So we see that, that John Mark leaves. We don't know many reasons. We don't know exactly why, but we know it was serious. But the good news is at some point they're reconciled, because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, uh, this is Paul writing. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is very useful from ministry. And so what we see is there was a division at some point, so much so that it ended up splitting up Paul and Barnabas, but somehow, some way, we don't know how there was a reconciliation, so much that Paul said, hey, Mark, Mark's beneficial for me. Like I, and so we see some awesome reconciliation that happens. We don't know how, but we see it happens. And I wrote it down like this. Conflict is in, in, inevitable, but it doesn't have to end in failure. Right, the picture is like any time like we're doing this thing called gospel advancement. Any time we're doing ministry, any, listen. Any time humans are present, there will be conflict. Like there will because we're fallen people, and, we, and it's encouraging to me because oftentimes we read scripture, we see like Paul and Barnabas, and or, and we see Peter and Timothy. Like these guys are like the heroes of the faith, and it's just encouraging me. You know, like they they get into conflict too. And that got arguments too. They butted their heads too so much so that anyway, and so it's just a practical point there that conflict is going to happen, but it doesn't have to end in failure, that we see reconciliation even between Paul and Mark towards the end of uh, the Bible there. When people are involved, there will be drama, but we are on the same team. That's important for us to remember uh, whenever uh, we are doing this thing called life together as believers in Jesus that community isn't the easiest thing in the world, but it's necessary and it's beneficial. Like we rob ourselves, I believe we say this often, whenever we isolate ourselves from the people of God, we're robbing ourselves of a blessing that God's given us. But we need to know that it's, it's going to be tough. If Paul and Barnabas and Mark got an argument, we are going to as well. But our our... Our disagreements, our conflict doesn't have to end in failure. It doesn't have to end in throwing in the towel because what unites us is obviously greater than anything that could divide us. So we see in verse 13 that Paul and his companions, they set sail. Uh, they get to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them. He went to Jerusalem, verse 14. And then they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now, this is, there's a lot going on right here. Now, like, there's a whole lot that Luke just kind of flies over that I want to kind of camp out for a moment. First of all, it says he went to Antioch and Pisidia. So this is another Antioch, not the Antioch they started in. This is, a, this is another Antioch. There was actually 16 uh, Antiochs. 
Uh, it was from a guy named Seleucius Nicator. He, he named 16 different Antiochs after his father Antiochus. He loved his dad so much that he'd get a city, he'd name it after his dad. That's why I have so many different Antiochs throughout the scripture. And so this is one in Pisidia. It's over 100 miles uh, from Perga to Pisidia. So they've traveled 200 plus miles to get to Pamphylia. Now after they get there, now they're, they're traveling another 100 miles. Uh, uh, Pisidia is 3,600 foot above sea level. And now what we're seeing is that they're entering into southern Galatia. And so when we get to the book of Galatians, and Paul begins to talk about his first time going, this is what we're talking about. This is his first time in preaching that he's entering into the area of what we call Galatians, or Asia Minor, if you will. Uh, Pisidia was a Roman colony. It was, it was the governing and military center in the south, southern Galatia. And it seems, so this seems like not a big deal, right? So Luke's just telling us they went from there to there, but I thought I think there's more to the text that we need to see. See, it seems easy, but it was all but anything. Uh, it was all but easy for multiple reasons. I began to ask the question when I came to this text was, when I got to Perga, why didn't they preach there? Why did they just skip Perga? There was something going on, and what we understand, if we continue to read the Scriptures, is that when Paul got to Galatia, he was very sick. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, it says, You know it was because of my bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And so Paul's telling the church of Galatians, When I first came to Galatia and preached, you know I was very sick. Like most scholars believe that he has like some type of malaria fever where his, his fever would have been burst, like his headaches, it would have been debilitating. Some people think that's why Mark, John Mark left because he was sick as well. He went back home, but Paul, because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, began to go. And here's what's crazy. He was sick so much so that some people believe his fever was so much. One reason why they bypassed Perga straight to Pisidia because it was so high, 3,600 square foot, 3,600 square foot, I paint a lot, 3,600 feet above sea levels because he was trying to get to the cooler air. He was trying because he was so sick with the fever. But Paul being sick was just one part of the difficulty. To get from Perga to Pisidia, you had to cross over the Taurus Mountains, which were known for their ruggedness. And uh, actually, one guy said it like this. Antioch lay some 100 miles to the north across the Taurus Mountain Range. The route was barren, often flooded with swollen mountain streams, notorious for its bandits, which even the Romans had difficulty bringing under control. Actually, some people, actually, there's history that says that even Alexander the Great avoided these mountains because the bandits were so bad. This may be what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, when he says, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, and dangers from robbers, and dangers from my own people. So, not, so here's the thing, ready? Paul's sick, so much so that he's, evidently it changed, like the, his appearance didn't even look good when he came to Galatia. John Mark had left them. But even in his sickness, he hiked across the mountains. We don't know how he did it. He went across the Taurus Mountains. Why? To get the gospel somewhere. Even in his sickness, even in things that are going, in the drama that's happening, in his disease that he has, he keeps moving forward. Listen to me. Ministry isn't for the faint of heart. Advancing the gospel, it will cost us. 
Paul was going to get the gospel to them no matter what. Why? Because God had called him to do it. He pushed through his inconvenience. He pushed through his, even his sickness. And I wrote it down, and this, isn't, this is really more me not trying to step on your toes, but the Holy Spirit stepping on mine this morning, that, that Paul crossed over the mountains while deathly sick. What's keeping me from crossing my street to share the gospel with my neighbor? And so, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot in verses 13 to 14 that Luke just kind of skips over that we have to understand the context here. That the man was sick, and yet he trekked through some of the roughest mountains of 3,600 feet above sea level to share the gospel. So he gets there, he gets to Antioch and Pisidia. And verse 14, it says, And on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue and sat down. Probably was, he's probably ready to sit down, right, after going through that. So he gets to the synagogue, and he sits down. Remember, when walking into the synagogue, this is something that we'll see throughout the missionary journeys. It's something that they did, and, and, and many people, you know, ask why. Why was that a, a primary thing? And I, I believe because, man, even though Paul was called to be a missionary to the Gentiles, man, he, he desired for his people to come to know Jesus. And we read it in Romans chapter 10. He says, my brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved, that people would, even Jew, would believe in Christ Jesus. So we see drama, disease, and determination in verses 13 and 14. Now here's the bulk of the text is, is Paul's sermon, in which I have titled his sermon for him, uh, is God is faithful to his people and his promise. So what we see in this text in verse 15. This is after the reading from the law and the prophets. And so he goes into the synagogue service and they had an order of service, if you will. It usually began with prayers or the reading of the Shema. Uh, and then there was, a, there was a reading from the law and the prophets. And then after that, uh, someone would stand up and preach an expository sermon from whatever text that they read. And it was a custom, customary for if there was a traveler or a guest in the synagogue, they would ask them, hey, brother, would you, do you have a word for us? And that's exactly what's going on here. So they finally get to Antioch. They sit down. They're probably, whew, we made it. And then, hey, do you want to come preach? Uh, I'm going to do that one Sunday to somebody in here. Like, how would you feel about it? I'm gonna, we're going to read the text and go, all right, it's your turn. What you got? Uh, anyway, and so that's the context of what's going on here is that they, they, they show up, they sit down. There's a reading of the law and the prophets. And then one of the elders there said, brothers, do you have any word for the people? Say it now. And we have to see that we have to like, take a time out for a moment because it's something we've been trying to address. It's something we've been trying to make sure we keep in our eye is that we call this, this book that we're reading the Acts of the Apostles. But more than that, it's the acts of God that is getting his gospel on the face of the earth. We have to see, it's not coincidence that Paul and Barnabas end up in this synagogue and just randomly get asked to come preach. It was God, his Holy Spirit, orchestrating these things happening in their life. You got to see this, the Holy Spirit at work. They weren't trusting in the gimmicks of man, but the preparation of the Holy Spirit. And so, Verse 16, Paul stood, stands up, and he motions with his hands. I wrote it down that even Paul preached with his hands, and so I can do the same thing, right? So he motioned with his hands. He was saying, everybody, look, here we are. Uh, and so he says, men of Israel, so now he's speaking to Jews, 
which is most of this sermon is going to be specific to Jews, but it also says, and you who fear God, this is proselytes. These were Gentiles who were trying to be Jews. We've met like the Ethiopian eunuch, like somebody who wasn't born Jew, but they worship Yahweh. And so anyway, they're in the synagogue uh, worshiping with the Jews here. And so he says, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. It's authoritative. He says, listen. And uh, just a side note, that's why uh, we believe here that the scripture, the scripture is authoritative. Uh, we believe God's word has the authority. It is our final authority. It is our, our, our ultimate authority of life. And so whenever, that's why we take preaching serious, because we believe that God's word is authoritative. It is, it is that Paul saying, listen to me. This is the word of God. Thus says the Lord is ultimately what this picture is. It is listen. And so now let's get into it. It says, now listen. It says, the God of this people, I'm going to read it again. The God of this people, Israel, chose your, our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And, uplifted, uh, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And we'll pause there for a moment. Ultimately, in this text, what we can we could have named it the culmination of all of Israel's history. Like, we could have named it like where all of Israel's history is headed. Have you ever thought about that? Where is history going? Like, is there a point to the madness? Like, there's some people I should believe that we just we just we're just here. Like, the human existence is one of no purpose, no meaning. We hear, we live, we die. Other people are born, we live, we die. And the cycle just keeps going. That, that ultimate history is just a series of random events that do not connect and do not have any purpose at all. And what we see in this text, obviously, is towards Israel, but all of history is headed to Christ. To Jesus. It is pointed to Jesus from beginning to end. It is headed towards Christ. We see it in his first coming, but ultimately in his second coming, that all of history exists for Jesus. That's what we see in this text of it's Israel, and he's saying, Listen to me, your history is for this reason. And listen to me, our history is for this reason, and his name is Jesus. Everything is culminated. Everything makes sense. Everything is redeemed and made new. And Jesus, all of history is headed to his glory and his fame. See, God created man for his glory and for fellowship. Man, this is good here. I hope somebody says amen to this. Sin broke that, but God promised a Savior. Listen to me. History is headed towards its original intent, God's glory and his fellowship with his creation. It's been inaugurated in his first coming, but it'll be completely culminated in the second coming when God's glory will reign supremely and we will dwell with him forever. Where's history going? to where it began, of God's glory and God's fellowship with his people. Now, let's actually get to this. God is the subject of every verb just about in this whole first part of this sermon that Paul is preaching. He says, if you go back and look at it, God chose, God made, God led, God put up with, God gave, God gave, God removed, God raised up, God brought, God promised. The, the, 
the main character of Paul's sermon is God. And obviously he's going to introduce Jesus towards verse 23, but it is God. It is God who, who chose it. It is God who led Israel. It is God who saved Israel. It was God who did all things. It was God who was orchestrating everything. First of all, we see that God chose them by his grace. Look at verse 17. And the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And here we talk about specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when you think about Abraham, his calling where God chose him, Abraham was a pagan. He wasn't somebody who, who was like halfway good. He was a pagan in a, in a foreign land, and he was just doing his thing, and God called him out. It was God who chose him. Nothing that Abraham had done, but out of God's grace, he chose Abraham to, from him to make a nation that one day would bring about a Savior. Why did he do that? Because he's God and he's gracious. Why? Because his original ten of all humanity was his glory and a relationship with the people. Why did he do this? Because he, he had this plan. And it started by he chose him choosing their fathers. And then he moves fast and he goes, They made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So we go from Abraham all the way now to Joseph to Moses. He's doing what Stephen did ultimately, and I'm excited. I, I, I missed this in my notes, and here's another side note that God kind of showed me as I walked through this was what I love about it is that the message doesn't change from Peter to Stephen to Paul. It's the same gospel, and there's a lot of things that we can unpack on that, that the gospel doesn't change. The mouthpiece may change, but the gospel doesn't change, and ultimately what we're seeing, they're following the same pattern. Now, what I did see, and actually surprised me, is that is that Paul is much more compassionate than Peter and Stephen. Like, in the same, in the same context, ultimately Stephen's sermon is probably more closely with Paul, where Stephen ultimately finished his sermon with, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised people, you killed the Messiah. Paul ends with, and he came so your sins could be forgiven. And so it's like, it's, it's, like, it's like the same model, but a different method. But anyway, and so first of all, we see that God chose them by his grace. God made them, ultimately, he made them great in the land of Egypt, despite the attempts of Egypt, that God had a plan for these people. He called them out by his grace. And though the, though the enemy tried to thwart you, the enemy tried to slow it down, that God made them great. That there was nothing that the enemy could do to stop what God had planned. That he started with a choice by choosing Abraham. Why? To, for the culmination of history, for his glory, and for man to be dwelling with the creator forever. He, he called out a guy named Abraham, and through his offspring they built a nation that even when they were slavery, God made them great. And you can imagine being a Jew in this context going, yeah. He's got us. Like, he understands us. He, what he's doing, he's setting it up because he's about to say, and you missed it. <laughs> so anyway, God chose them by his grace. The second thing that we see is that he, God delivered them by his power. 17b, it says, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So God chose them by his grace, but he saved them by his power. This uplifted arm became a, a symbol of God's power, if you will. When you read through Exodus or Deuteronomy or in the Psalms, we talk about God's power oftentimes as an outstretched hand and a, and a mighty arm is the picture of God's power. We see it in Exodus 6, 6, 6, 6 it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with a great 
acts of judgment. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, we read, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with what a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So it's by God's power, it's by God's grace that, that God chose the people of Israel, starting with Abraham. It was by his great power that he delivered them from the bondage in Egypt. Not only that, but he kept them in his, or by his provision. We see that in verse 18. Well, if I was in chapter 13, that'd be great, wouldn't it? In verse 18, it says, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I, <laughs> that's a funny text there, but this word, I naturally wanted to say he was just, he was long-suffering. He put up with them. He, they were annoying, put up with them. But the word there can actually be translated probably more accurately is he carried them. Like a father carries. Now, I think there is a point that it was a putting up with because I'm a dad and I understand that I love my kids, but sometimes they're just putting up with stuff, right? Because they're kids and they're, they're anyway. So I don't think that you can, these two concepts go against one another. I think they're both. And that comes really from, from Deuteronomy 131. And speaking of this actual thing, we read this, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that we, you went until you came to the place. And so the picture is, is not only did, did God choose them by his grace, deliver them by his power, but he kept them in his provision. We understand in the wilderness that he provided food and water. He, he provided safety. He provided victories. And we understand that they were kept by his provision. You know, it's real cool here is Paul gives us a, a time lapse, and he says, actually, verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. He provided the very land in which he promised who? Abraham. So by his grace, he called out a man named Abraham and said, I will take you to this place that will be your inheritance. And then we understand, and this is beautiful, that, that, through that through that one man, this great nation was born. They were put in captivity, but God delivered them. And on the way to the promise, and he kept them by his provision, then he provided the very land in which he promised their forefathers. Can you can imagine the Jew in the synagogue going, yes, yes, he gets us. He understands our story. Glory be to God, if you will. And he says all this took place about 450 years. And so he kind of, he does the math for us. And so you have 400 years while in Egypt. Then you had 40 years in the wilderness and about 10 years of conquering Canaan. All that together is 450 years. So God, for 450 years, even before that, but from, from Egypt to, to conquering Canaan, that, that God had provided for them, that God had kept them in his provision. Not only that, but the next one is that God loved them despite their failures. Look at verse 20, the second part of verse 20. says, after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then he, they asked for a king. So Justin, why is that fair? Is it because they didn't trust God. They didn't want God to be their king. They wanted to be like every other nation, have a mortal man as their king. And man, I love this. And they, they, they wanted, they wanted Saul, and they, they wanted their kings. And this is what, man, God blew my mind, is that God had a plan for, before the foundation of the earth, and not even their evil desires could stop God's plan from happening. 
Like whenever they wanted a king and they chose a bad king, what did God do? He removed him. Why? Because there's nothing that man could do to thwart God's plan. Even the disobedience of his people. Even the disobedience of, his, of the offspring of Abraham. Why? Because he loved them even in their failures, despite their lack of trust and desire to be like other nations. His plan wasn't thwarted by their choices or their desires. And so we see, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, a man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And then he wasn't doing it. The thing, right, you can go to the first Samuels and read kind of the story there, but God said, all right, you're done. And he found a guy named David, and it says, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who would do all of my will. And I was like, you ever struggle with that? Like, because you know David's story, right? Like, David wasn't perfect. Like, I want to I I understand, David was not a perfect man. David had flaws and faults. Adultery, murder. You know what David, what made David a godly man? Is that he confessed the sin and he repented of it. And he began, he, he continued pushing after and seeking the Lord. And he ultimately desired to do what God had called him to do. That's what made him a godly man. Not that he was perfect, but even when after he failed, horrendous failures, that he repented and kept following the Lord and earnestly sought to do what God had called him to do. David wasn't perfect, but he sought to obey God. Lastly, God brought the Savior as he promised. Not only save him, save him by his, or choose him by his grace and save him by power and keep in his provision and love them inside their failures, he sent the Savior as he promised he would. And it says, of this man, and so at this point, they love King David, by the way. One of the reasons they love King David is because David, there was a prophecy or a promise to David that there would be one who came and ruled on his throne. So them Jew, the Jews loved David because in their picture was, there was a guy who was coming, and as soon as the Messiah came, he was going to sit on that throne. And all their enemies would be subdued. All the captivity for hundreds of years that they have been, they've been sojourners in foreign lands, that their rights have been taken away from them, that finally God was going to send from the throne or from the seat of David, from David's royal line. There was going to be one who came, and he was going to right all the wrongs. He was going to make Rome fall and Babylon and all of them. He was going to defeat all of them. And then at this point, they're listening. Yes, we believe. And listen to me, he says, and from that man's seed, God sent a Savior, and his name's Jesus. You missed him. God chose you. He delivered. He was patient. He loved you despite your failures and he stuck to his promise that he said he would send you a Messiah. And that Messiah, the one you're looking for, he's already came and his name is Jesus. And at that point, most of the Jews in there are going to like cut him off. Now, the sermon keeps going. Actually, there's a lot of people, I think that there's a lot of people who will actually invite him back. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. It's probably most of those 
those proselytes, for the Jews, for the most part, were going to, they didn't want to hear that point. They stopped their ears probably at this point. But what we see in this text, and I'm going to kind of leave us on a cliffhanger there because that's only halfway through the sermon. And that's okay. That's the great thing about preaching like we do is I can say, hey, come back next week. Luke's going to pick up where I left off. We're going to keep going. You'll hear the rest of the sermon. It's a beautiful thing about that. I don't have to fit everything in. But what we see, and here's the, I think here's the take home this morning, is that God was moving history to his purpose and his plan, which again is what? His glory and the fellowship with his creation. And what we see in this text, there was never a time from Abraham to Jesus that God wasn't running the show. Every step of the way, this is going to encourage somebody, I hope, every step of the way from their times, listen to me, in idolatry to their times of bondage and slavery, from their times of wandering, their disobedience, their failures in the good times and the bad, God never left them to themselves. That should, I hope that's encouraging somebody this morning. That Israel's story is not a beautiful one, if you will. It's not all rainbows and butterflies and unicorns. That there's deep bondage. That for 400 years, they cried out to God, God, why are we here? Deliver us. And eventually, he told Moses, tell my people I've heard their cries. That there wasn't a moment in the history of Israel that God left them to themselves. Are y'all with me this morning? That there was not a moment that they ever took a step that God wasn't orchestrating things for his glory and for his purpose of being in relationship with his creation. And if it's true for Israel, it's true for me and you that there's not a moment in your life, there's not a day in your life, there's not a second in your life that God's not in control. He's sovereignly working, even in the bondage, even in the wandering, even in the rebellion, in the good times and the bad times. God is working things to where history is going to culminate in the praise and the glory of his Jesus. That's good, y'all. That's encouraging because I have seasons in my life. I have times in my life where I don't, I'm not hitting home runs. I'm not even, coach ain't even putting me in the game. But he loves us even in our rebellion. Even in our sinfulness. Even in our disobedience and failures. Every step of the way, God is directing history to his son. That's including me and you for his glory and for our fellowship with those he created. And we just see it in the first couple of verses of Paul's sermon. Man, this is going to be a good sermon. So what does that, what, what's that mean for me and you today? I hope, I hope Scripture encourages you. But listen to me. Have you ever thought, how could they miss it? <laughs> like, you know the story. You have the, you, have, you have the prophecy that there will be a suffering servant. Like, how could you miss it? How could you miss this Messiah? And we want to give them, like, you dummies. But the reality is there are people that come sit in churches every Sunday 
who hear the gospel proclaimed that Jesus was the one that the Father sent to the Messiah to be the Savior for the whole world. And you know you haven't trusted in Jesus, yet you walk out the door. Or maybe you're not, maybe you're in your life, and maybe you're here because you're wandering. Like maybe you're in here because, because you're like you're trying to give God a chance, if you will. That there's a void deep within your heart, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to fill it with so many things. Trying to fill it with relationships or being busy. Maybe I can start doing Christian things and that the void is going to begin to feel better. I'm going to alleviate that by being busy for God, if you will. And just like Israel saw everything, they were close in proximity, but they missed it. Sadly, is that there are many people who are sitting right here this morning, but you're going to miss it. Because Jesus is the only thing that can fill that void that you're trying to fill. Why? Because you were created. Let's go back to the world. You were created for God's glory and to be in relationship with the God that created you. And there's only one who can make that happen in your life. There's only one who can bring you back into relationship with your creator. There's only one who can redeem you for God's glory, and his name is Jesus. Will you call upon him this morning? Will you trust in him? Because in, even in your rebellion, Scripture says, even while we were sinners, still sinners, that Christ died for the ungodly. That's me and you, BT Dove. Don't be like Israel. Because Israel gets saved just like we get saved. They trust in Jesus. Don't be like Israel here. Will you believe in Christ this morning? Simply call out. As John Ryan comes up, I'm going to pray for us. I seriously want you to, to think through that. In this first part of Paul's sermon here is maybe this morning you're here because you need to trust in Jesus for salvation. Maybe you're in here this morning because You're in the 400 years of slavery, if you will. That's a picture of, Egypt is a picture of, of us being in the domain or bondage of sin, of darkness. That it, Israel couldn't get themselves out of Egypt. But God, with a, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, came in and took them out of there. And that's, what, that's the imagery of what happens when we trust in Jesus as Savior, is that we are in bondage, we're slaves to sin. But with a mighty, outstretched, powerful, saving arm of our Savior, Christ Jesus and the Father, is that he reaches into that picks us up out of it. You need to trust in him this morning. Maybe you're in that idea where you know God has saved you, he's delivered you out of Egypt, but you're kind of wandering. 
I need to remind you that he's still with you. He's still guiding. Maybe this morning you need to, as a believer, as a child of God, guess what? We're called to repent as well. Maybe this morning you need to repent of your wandering. Or maybe you're in rebellion. Maybe you're like Israel and you want to, you're trying to, God, give me a king. I need something to live for, somebody to submit to. And you're submitting to some other king and not King Jesus. And as a child of God, you need to repent of idols in your life, that you're, you're bowing down to another king and his name ain't Jesus. I don't know if I can say ain't and Jesus in the same sentence. Is that disrespectful? His name is not Jesus. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you call out to God this morning and say, God, I'm sorry for bowing down and wanting to be like what the world says I need to be, just like Israel did. But even in that, you're faithful, you still love me, and so therefore I'm confessing, I'm repenting of this sin. I need to slay down some idols this morning, maybe. Maybe you're in a season that, I'm sure there's 40 years, 400 years, Got lonely. They be like, God, where are you? Maybe that's where you find yourself. I want to remind you that that God hears you. He sees you. You're not alone. I can't tell you what he's trying to do, but I can tell you where it's headed. And it is headed to his glory. It is headed to the praise of Jesus. And it's headed to your good as you walk with your Savior. Trust him. Submit to him. Lay yourself at his feet. Say, God, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand your timing. I don't know what's going on. But God, I know you're sovereignly working all things according to your plan. And I trust you. I will follow you. It's a simple step to start saying, God, I submit myself to you. I'll be standing in the back, Luke, and be standing in the back as well. If you need to talk or pray, we'll be back there. If you need to make your seat uh, a place to pray, if you need to come down front, this morning, if you need to ask Jesus to confess your sins and trust Jesus as Savior, we'll be standing back there. All you gotta do is come to us and say, hey, I, I need to trust in Jesus. I need his mighty hand and his outstretched arm to lift me up out of my sin. And he'll do it if we ask. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, that we can read your Read your word and see these powerful sermons that the men of God preached. And what's beautiful, God, is that my prayer is that the same, the same message that Paul preached in Acts chapter 13, as it's preached here again, God, that you would still save people with it. God, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice, God, that hasn't trusted in, in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, God, that this morning they'll do it. God, for the Christian who's been bowing down to, to kings and idols, God, I pray that we confess that idolatry, we confess that to you, God, and we, we submit to you. God, for those who've been wandering, maybe, God, your Holy Spirit would draw them back. God, we look forward, we anticipate to the day that all things are made right, that 
our new reality that, that we will be with you and experience your glory and fullness and walk with you fully, God. But until that day comes, God, I pray that you increase our appetite and our desire for that day. That as we look to that future grace, that we look to that future culmination of all things, God, that it would maybe alleviate some of the strongholds that we place on the temporal as we focus on the eternal. God, we love you. Have your way during this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand and respond as the Lord leads.